All right, let's open our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Last week, you'll recall, <clears throat> we just came off of going through 1 Peter. And 1 Peter was written by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Peter in order to encourage a scattered group of Christians all over the Roman Empire uh, to encourage them to remain steadfast and to, to live noble, holy lives in the midst of what was going to come their way, and that was going to be intense persecution. You remember that they were already undergoing persecution, but it was about to get considerably worse. And so First Peter prepares them for that. Now, when we go into Second Peter, now what he prepares them for and warns them is, is in the midst of all your uh, difficulty and all your trouble, the enemy is going to try to exploit that and he's going to send among you false uh, teachers. And here's what they'll look like, here's what they'll act like. And not so much does he go into the error of their doctrine as he does in the characteristics of their lives. He says more about that than he does about their doctrine. Because we know error doctrine can come in a variety of different ways. A bunch of different packages and labels and... And the devil is not creative, but he does recycle things that have worked for him over the, over, the, over the ages. And then we talked about last week that before he ever gets into uh, the, the false doctrine and the warnings that come there, he talks about what is real Christianity. What is the genuine real deal thing? And we talked about last week that in this three short chapters, the word knowledge appears 16 times. And we went over last week that in... Other areas of life, what you don't know might not hurt you, but that's not so in the spiritual realm. What you don't know will hurt you. And we talked about the fact that God said that my people die for a lack of knowledge. And he goes on in the first chapter and he celebrates the great salvation that was purchased for us. And then he goes on to, to describe what should be our response to that salvation so that we can be more sure, not of the power of salvation, but of our possession of it. Because there's so many Christians that are hamstrung and handicapped in the Christian life because they never move into a place of full assurance that they belong to the Lord. And you might be one of those. You might be struggling with that right now. You might be headed for that struggle. But you also might know, about, you might know somebody close up to you that you're going to meet or you know now who's in the middle of that struggle. And we could be a blessing and a help to them. Because that, that is a, that's, a, that's spiritual tyranny. And the enemy knows that he can't do anything about our relationship. It's eternal. So if he knows he can't do anything about our relationship and he can't sever that or destroy that because of Rosemary, the blood covenant, if he can't do anything about that, then he says, well, okay, then I'll do the next best thing. I'll mess up their fellowship. If I can get them to cast doubt on their salvation and, and whether or not they're really in the fold, I can keep them in a spiritual um, quagmire, a, a, a zone of spirituality where they're, they're really ineffective for the Lord who bought them. And so he begins that, and I'll tell you another reason he does that. Statistics bear this out. And you can read them from a variety of sources. But here's a common thread. Cults are peopled. Cults are full of people who once professed Christian faith and, and once would have called themselves a an Orthodox Christian who fell prey to some errant form of doctrine that led them down a road 
of destruction. And so what, what the Apostle Peter knows and what God knows because he used Peter to write it is this. If you don't embrace the sure faith in Christianity you have and there's not a commitment to live that Christianity out, you could be fodder for the false notions of false teachers. Uh, that, that's what happens. I, I've run into many people who wind up Mormon. or uh, I know one friend in particular, and I've invited him to church several times, and he owns a restaurant in the, in the area. Nicest guy. And he's now a Mormon. And he was once a professing evangelical Christian. And uh, so I know this to be the case. I've had personal issues in de dealing with it in ministry. And so he's saying, you know, before we ever talk about the false teaching, let's talk about where you stand with the Lord. And really, that's the way the Lord works. The first time, if we're ever to confront a brother or sister in sin and try to help them if they're off the path and they're wayward and we leave the 99 to go get the one, what's the very first step we're to take before we do that? To look at ourselves. And so he's calling for a self-examination in a, in, a, in, a, in a new bent, in a new trajectory in our living. I'm going to outline this, <clears throat> uh, this first few verses, and we want to zone, zone in on a couple of things before we get into the, the mechanics of, of assurance of salvation. But he's preventing people from being victims of cults, victims of the, of the, uh, of the false teaching that he's about to warn them of. And we're going to outline this, the person of our salvation, the procurement of our salvation, the power of our salvation, the pervasiveness of our salvation, the participation in our salvation, the purity of our salvation, and the product of our salvation. I know preachers like to do that and, and put peas in front of everything, but it, it does work in this text. And so I want to look at it. And listen, now, if you're physically able, will you stand with me as we read from God's precious Word? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus uh, our Lord, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by whom have given and been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust but also for this very reason giving all diligence add to your faith virtue to virtue knowledge to knowledge self-control to self-control perseverance to perseverance godliness to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love for if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the word of the living God. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. The person of our salvation, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, 
to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's always a temptation in Christian life to talk more about the mechanics than we do about the relationship dynamics of Christian faith. We have celebrated this time and time again and we've talked about this, but salvation is not just about a plan. Salvation is a plan that connects us with a person and His name is Jesus Christ. The gospel is a gospel about somebody. It's not just a message of nuts and bolts things that we do in order to make us fit for or make us hopeful for a future heaven. It's a relationship between us and God that was purchased by His Son, Jesus Christ. And in this person of salvation, we see how the Bible discloses Him. And that is that God the Son became a man. Look what it says. That the righteousness of our God and Savior. Jesus Christ is 100% God, and Jesus Christ became 100% man. He did that to bridge the gap between God and man that was created by our sin. When God told Adam in the Garden of Eden that sin would result in death, He meant it. It resulted in physical death, but it also resulted in a far more greater death, and a far more wretched and terrible death, and that is spiritual death. Eternal separation from God and man a gap created by our sin. The fellowship that Adam enjoyed with God was broken at that time. And there was nothing that Adam could do to restore it. But God did something to restore it. And he prophesied from that very moment that he was going to become a man. He was going to put his son into the womb of Mary. And he was going to take on human flesh and come and die in the place of you and I. The death that sin calls for, the curse of sin and die in our place. And if we will repent of our sin, which means own up to it, take sides with God against ourselves, and trust the offering of His Son in our place to save us, that we would be saved. Not as a, a work, not as something we deserve, not obedience to some creed or some standard, but by grace through faith. It's a gift. Hallelujah. It's the person of salvation. Then we see the procurement of salvation. The procurement of salvation. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. The procurement of salvation is what we just talked about from the crosses up here. The procurement of salvation is the receipt of salvation. If I were to offer you, we've used this analogy before. Let's say Robert comes up here and I say, Robert, I really like you and I do. And Robert, you're my friend and you are. And I really want to give you a hundred dollar bill that's in my in my in my uh, see there. Forget about all that friend stuff I just said. And so if I offer that to Robert, it'll do him no good. He can look at the hundred dollar bill. He can go and off and have it analyzed and view it and say it's an authentic one hundred dollar bill. But if he never receives it, it'll never do him any good. There's plenty of people who stand distant from a God that they've heard about and they've heard taught and maybe read about in the Bible, but until we receive Him by faith, that's how salvation is procured. It is through repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. That's when we come to K-N-O-W Him. And Jesus said that, like we've talked about in John 17.3. This is eternal life, that they may know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom Thou hast sent. In thee we see the great power of our salvation. 
Look at verse 3. As His divine power has given unto, all, given unto us all things that protect, pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him, through knowing Him. The gospel is a powerful message. You and I have experienced the power of the gospel. Can I say this right now and just say it out loud? I am not the same person that I used to be. Thank God for that. And I'm becoming a different person than I am today through the grace of God. I was an angry, bitter young man. And, and, uh, and God has, Jesus Christ and His gospel has changed my life. And you're nodding your head, some of you in here, because you know exactly what I'm talking about. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. It's a transforming, powerful message. It is a message of, of, of a link between God and man through Jesus Christ, whereby we're changed eternally. And we live different because we've been made different. People can try to change and try to make changes in the course of their life, but they usually fall flat. They might make some minor changes, but we're stuck with a nature, a sin nature that we inherited from Adam, and we're, there's nothing we can do about it apart from the gospel. God did something about it. Amen? It's a powerful message. The Bible says that uh, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Hallelujah. It's a powerful message because we serve a powerful Savior. The pervasiveness of it. The pervasiveness of it. Look at this. As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. We have it all. If you have the Son, you have everything. If you don't have the Son, you have nothing. You have nothing. The Bible says, He who has the Son has the life, and he who does not have the Son does not have life. We have everything. We're spiritual gazillionaires because of Jesus Christ. We are joint heirs with Christ, the Bible says. The Bible says that we've been gifted through faith, with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. So positionally speaking, we as believers stand as right with God as His Son does. Because it is through His Son's standings that we stand. Hallelujah for that. That's why we can approach His throne boldly to find mercy and grace and help in time of need. And look at the participation of the Gospel. Through the knowledge of Jesus, He called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. Hallelujah. The Bible's clear about this. The Bible says in Colossians, when Christ, comma, who is our life, comma, is revealed, we will also be revealed with Him in glory. My life is no longer, it's gone. It's been absorbed. It's been crucified. Yours has too as believers. And now the life I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. The Bible says in Romans 5, verse 10, that we were, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, but were eternally saved by His life. 
Jesus gave us the greatest thing He could give us. He gave us Himself. He didn't just die for us. Hallelujah. That's wonderful. But He lives for us. We're partakers in the divine nature. Saints. That's who we are. That doesn't make us proud. It makes us humble. And it makes us proud of Him. That He has made us partakers of the divine nature. That's the participation of the gospel. We could go a lot deeper there. And then the purity of the gospel. Look what it says. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Lust is defined as desire out of control. And the Bible says the things of the world, if we love the world, and he identifies the things of the world in 1 John, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. We want everything. The lust of man is never full. We have a fleshly, insatiable appetite for every need being met outside the sovereign will of God. We said to God, in the garden, we don't want to have anything to do with you. We'd rather you just get out of our business. We can take it from here. And we've been living that way ever since. And we escaped that. How did we escape it? Not by something we did. We escaped it by rescue. God came and rescued us from that. That's the purity of the gospel. And what the gospel produces, the product of the gospel, is not only a life that's been changed, but a life that decidedly lives changed look what it says but you also for this very reason give all diligence giving all diligence add to your faith virtue to virtue knowledge to knowledge self-control to self-control perseverance to perseverance godliness to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love love see God calls us to a virtuous life of love. And those who live a virtuous life of love because of their Christian faith and their participation in the divine nature will not fall prey to false teachers or false doctrine. It's just that simple. We're not fodder for the enemy. And we can help those who might fall prey. We can help those who maybe have fallen prey. This is brought home to me. This guy, I love this guy. And I've tried to reach out to him, and I'm going to continue to try, God willing. I can, can imagine how you can go from the evangelical Christianity to, to a cult like Mormonism. And he's never was with us because he left. But I'm praying that God will claim him. But the virtuous life of love is what God's called us to. Look what he says in verse 5. But also for this very reason. And you go, what reason? Also for this very reason. Well, there's got to be a reason for the reason. The reason for the reason is everything that just preceded it. The reason for the reason is that you and I, it goes back up to, you can, I can make, draw a line, you can draw an arrow between verse 5 where it says for this very reason and go back up to verse uh, 3. And there's the reason we have been called. The reason is our calling. We've been called. You and I, our calling, God has called and elected us as believers. It is for the calling. It's the same thing that Romans 12, 1 and 2 says. By the mercies of God, offer up your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is a reasonable act of worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. It says... 
Why? Why lay down my life as a living sacrifice? Because of the mercies that are displayed in the first 11 chapters of Romans. It's the same thing here. What he's saying is this. Because of the person of salvation, because of the procurement of salvation whereby God came to you and saved you through repentance and faith, because of the power of salvation applied to your life, because of the pervasiveness, because you've been gifted all things, because of the participation, because you have, you have you know, participants in the divine nature, because of the purity of the gospel. This is reasonable. In other words, because of all those great things that just preceded that, for this reason, for this reason, God has called us to a virtuous life of love. For this reason, an overflow, not to gain favor with God, not to make those things real and true of me and of you as believers, but our obedient and faithful response to the fact that those things are true. I have and you have participated in the divine nature. I have, you have, have everything that we need for life and godliness through Jesus Christ. I and you have power available to us whereby we don't have to be bound to the things that used to bind us and be enslaved to that which used to enslave us. We don't have to act, look, or be any way that we used to be. We have been made free. And he's saying this, because of that, because of that, for those reasons, add to your faith virtue. We've got to spend some time right here because I don't want anybody to be confused. I want anybody to be confused. Listen to this. There's a big, giant, colossal period after this statement. Salvation is by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Period. Salvation is not received Salvation is not sustained and future glory is not based on anything beyond grace through faith. Period. That is a hill we'll die on. That's a hill that every one of the apostles died on. It is by grace through faith. We don't work for it. We don't deserve it. And we don't earn it. We don't work for it to get in. We don't work for it to stay in and we don't work for it as, and, and receive as a reward of our works one day the future glory that it promises. It is from faith to faith. Period. From pillar to post. It never becomes faith and works. It never becomes faith and obedience to the law. It never becomes faith and baptism. It never becomes faith and some denominational affiliation. It never becomes faith and grandma. It never, it never becomes faith in anything else. It's faith Period. Amen? So when it says there, it says there to add to your faith, we've got to do some examination of that word. We'll go, we'll go no further until we get this. God willing. Does not mean that the faith that was gifted by God to you die by the way needs to be added to in order to secure our salvation. It doesn't mean that the, 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 the wonderful truth that preceded that, that the faith that makes that apply to me needs to be added to. It does not mean that at all. Faith, what? Period. Alright, but when it says this, I want to look at this word carefully. It says, for this very reason, because of the calling in our lives, 
Be diligent, diligent, diligent to add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. All right, now that word add right there. Does anybody in here have a New American Standard translation of the Bible this morning? Does anybody use that? You have it? Y'all got it with you? I have an ESV, but my NASV is at home. Okay. Um, in, the, in the New American Standard Version of the Bible, it's the best translation of this text. In my research, it's the best one. And here's what it says. It doesn't say, to your faith, add. It says, to your faith, supply. To your faith, supply virtue. And to virtue, knowledge. And to knowledge, self-control. Now, the Greek word from which the word add comes to, the noun form of that verb, okay, referred to a leader of a chorus. A leader of a chorus. And what happened was, during the, during the Greek culture at this time, they had great playwriters, great playwriters, who wrote every bit of the productions that we have today on Broadway, plays, and they would perform those plays and those productions in the individual cities in which the author lived. And, and they went all out for it. It, it, was a, it was lavish. It was a lavish production. It, wasn't, it was a no-holds-bar, no, spare-no-expense kind of thing. And so uh, what would happen is there were large choruses that were needed, singers, groups of singers that were needed in the city to, to, to perform the play. They would sing during the production. And the, the noun form or the verb form of this word was to describe the person who voluntarily recruited the chorus members, trained them, and uh, saw to it that they, were, that they got everything that they needed to perform at peak levels so that it would reflect well on the city. These were very, very, very civic-minded people who loved their culture and their community so much so that they were willing to give themselves over and, and completely give themselves over to making sure that everything that was needed for the production to be pulled off and to be quite impressive, to reflect well on the city and the culture they loved, they saw to it that the chorus members had it. And they did it at their own expense. So what happened was, is that, that during their great religious feasts at that time, they would have those plays. And men who took on this duty in order to bless their city were called by the noun form of the verb from which ad is translated in most of your translations. Now, the, 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 the verb form is what they did. It's how they went about what they did. And it means to lavishly pour out everything that is necessary for a noble performance. That's what it means. It means a spare no expense Labor of love. A spare no expense labor of love. It came to refer to equipping an army. To lavishly equip an army. I can tell you this. We spend a lot of money on defense in America. In the United States of America. But I can tell you this. If you're out on the front lines and you've got some kind of gadget that can spot the enemy before he spots you, or maybe you can fire him at night, and exploit the element of surprise and take him out before he takes you, you come to appreciate every dime that was spent. And you don't want to send your troops out with inferior equipment. You want them to go out with the best that you can possibly give them. Is that right? You don't want to put somebody's child, somebody's daughter, a son in harm's way 
without equipping them fully for the job to take out the enemy? The Lord, as an act of love, has lavishly equipped His army. And we have a supply, an inexhaustible supply to draw upon. So when it says, add to your faith, it doesn't mean that it's something beyond faith. What it means is, draw upon the lovingly lavished, poured out resources that you already have to live like this. That's what it means. It means a lavish labor of love. It means that I by faith am going to receive and live in and apply all the resources of heaven that are at my disposal. And by the way, all the resources of heaven are at my disposal. That's what it means. And so it's saying, your faith, wherever it is, take that faith and use that faith as a conduit through whom you receive all the resources of heaven to live and walk brand new. We've got to realize heaven is on our side as believers. He's not against us. If God be for us, who can be against us? The Bible says. The Bible says that we're more than conquerors. The Bible talks about us as believers in ways that we don't believe. We get run over by habitual sin. We get run over and hurt by habitual hurt, maybe from others. And we begin to live out the line, the drama line of the devil regarding God's elect. Well, you old spiritual pauper, you. God just put up with you. And maybe one day, if everything works out right, He'll let you slip into heaven uh, and take a number. And maybe if it all just works out right, He'll just accept you. And by the way, it just, it just, it just absolutely disgusted Him to make you a part. The other people got in and they're okay, but not you. He calls us spiritual paupers. I love the song and I refer to it. Andrew asked me, asked me last night. We were sitting in the parking lot waiting for her mother to, his mother to shop. He said, hey, what's your favorite you know, um, song? And I said, I, I tell you, one of them is Praise the Lord. And the song the peers used to do years ago. Maybe some of you are old enough to remember that. He said, when you're up against a struggle, it shatters all your dreams and your hopes have been cruelly crushed by Satan's manifested schemes. And you feel the urge within you to submit to earthly fear. Don't let the faith you're standing in seem to disappear. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He can work through those who praise Him. For our God inhabits praise. And he goes on to the second verse. He says, Satan is a liar. And he wants to make you think when you're paupers, when he knows himself, you're children of the King. So lift up the mighty shield of faith. For the battle must be won. Jesus Christ is risen. And the works already done. I'm here to tell you, somebody had a cat head biscuit from the grave of glory when they wrote that. And that's right. The devil wants to say that we're spiritual paupers and we draw from scarce resources and that we're just beggarly children who have to, who have to convince God to be gracious and merciful and kind to us. And we have to eke out of His stingy old hand every bit of life that we hope to get as we traverse through this world. And the opposite is true. God said this. Lindsay Lewis, a, 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 a dirty, rotten sinner apart from my son, a feeble man 
who's fraught with problems and issues wants to give good gifts to His children, how much more does a perfectly heavenly, perfect Heavenly Father want to give good gifts to His children? We don't serve a stingy God. And I'm not talking about the kind of things that people talk about in riches. Not worldly riches, heavenly riches. Spiritual riches that people are killing themselves for but just can't seem to press into or acquire. The peace that we have. The enabling to walk brand new. That we can add to our faith virtue. And that's the first stop on the ladder. He says, add to your faith virtue. It means moral excellence. It means a God-given ability to perform heroic deeds. It's a quality in a person's life that makes him or her stand out as excellent. It's not just virtuous speech. It's virtuous, virtuous action. We have the capacity to live that way. We can live in the most difficult circumstances and in the midst of the most difficult circumstances experience God's victory. He was talking to people who were doing that. He said, in the middle of the persecution you're going through, you add to your faith virtue. When you're, when you give, when you're given an opportunity to compromise your faith, when you're given an opportunity to compromise your integrity, the fact that you don't is predicated upon the vast spiritual resources in heaven that are available to you to not compromise. You don't have to compromise. You look to the left and you look to the right and if no one else is standing with you, God's standing with you. Young people, the younger ones among us, this is what we older folks pray for you. That when you get to the point, and you will get there, when you seem to stand alone and the crowd's going one way, your Christian faith and your love for your Lord because you begin to understand something about His love for you causes you to stand firm no matter what. And you know what? You and I have the spiritual resources in heaven to apply to stand firm in any situation.